0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Pamela Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined in person in the flesh once again uh, by Sarah Bae Jung
1: of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how is your trans Twitter esther going? my conference is going very well panel enjoying it very much thanks big thanks to josh abrams and jennifer parker starbuck for all their coordinating and organizational efforts
0: indeed it's been an excellent conference so far and uh the promise of more exciting conference to come uh, and I'm joined by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. How are you doing? I'm doing
2: great. I'm doing fantastic. Actually, fantastic, yeah.
0: Are you, are you still writing uh, high on the feeling of handing theater survey editorship off to Nick Rideout? I am, yes. Nick is fantastic. <laughs> He'll do a great job. Of course, yes. Um, and it was a fabulous reception last night. Thank you for hosting that. So if you haven't been able to tell uh, up to this point... The reason we are all together is that we are at Aster in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are recording on Saturday afternoon in a hotel room. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about three topics. The first topic is the job market, 2016, 2017. We've looked at the job ads, we've thought about the job market, and we will talk about what we see this year and our own tips and thoughts and experiences about navigating the job market. Second topic is Emma Rice's departure from the Globe Theatre in London. This is a story that is on a lot of people's minds, and we three Americans with no first-hand knowledge of the story have read a lot of online commentary, and we are going to share our Partly informed opinions. And the third (laughs) segment is Aster 2016 itself. Hashtag Aster 16 trans. What have we seen at the conference? What have we enjoyed? What has it made us think about? Before we get to the first of those major segments, the news roundup. There's not a lot in the News Roundup this episode. We are recording fresh after the Astra Awards ceremony, and uh, many awards were dispensed. 19 awards were dispensed. My co-hosts have talked me out of reading the names of every single awardee. And instead we are going to skip right to the end and acknowledge um, uh, Susan Bennett, who uh, was awarded the Distinguished Scholar Award for Outstanding Achievement in Scholarship in Theater Studies. Um, I think I would also like to sneak in congratulations to Yuri McMillan, who won both the Errol Hill Award for uh, African-American Theater Studies, which I mean, this is an unusual and remarkable event. He won the Errol Hill Award and the Barnard Hewitt Award, both for for his book Embodied Avatars, Genealogies of Black Feminist Art and Performance, brought out by NYU Press, and many other deserving awardees were uh, awarded.
1: Among whom I feel now obliged <laughs> to also mention, uh, Anthea Kraut, who yes. won, I think, the who won outright the Sally, Sally Baines, Baines. Yes. Award, was an honorable mention for the Bernard Hewitt, and this follows um, her award uh, at the for the Atha yes, Annual Book, book Prize, so yes. um, for choreographing uh, copyright.
0: Yes, uh, a fabulous book, and Susan Bennett's uh, career uh, acknowledged in deserving fashion, and many many other awards. The Mellon School of Theater and Performance Research announced its faculty for the June uh, 2017 sessions on research pedag- pedagogy and activism. I think I will not read these names either, but I will uh, congratulate Harvey Young, who's among this list of distinguished scholars.
1: And perhaps note that uh, applications are for junior right. junior faculty and advanced graduate students yes. are due March 1st, I believe.
0: That's right. And that is an exciting um, uh, opportunity for early career scholars in the field. Yeah, apply for
2: it and spend part of the summer at Harvard.
0: With Harvey and others. To start things off, uh, the job market 2016-2017, um, uh, job market 2016, 2017, there's always so much to say about the jobs that we see and patterns in the field. We looked at the wiki. I looked at the wiki. Um, I'm sure that we've had our ears to the ground, and many of us have been writing recommendations for people. What, jo- what jobs are out there that you guys um, think are interesting? What trends do we see?
1: So two two observations from this this list uh, in comparison with other lists. One is the what strikes me, and I'd be curious what your what your both of your impressions are. Is that the theater generalist plus directing yeah. seems to be the growing and 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 dominant profile. <clears throat> so someone who can teach uh, who is essentially based in theater scholarship of one form or another somewhat theater history somewhat you know other forms of of historical analysis um and theoretical analysis but but can do you know can directly a play a year or something like that and the other is the brown following on the harvard model which i'm wondering is this the new like ivy league calling card which is uh, an open invitation to any possible to living human <laughs> yes. uh in the field yeah. with no specialization and is and and I'm, so I've been wondering like what what is the purpose of that kind of a job announcement
2: well I noticed the number of practice based jobs that were on the wiki we uh, know mm-hmm. which surprised me you know that i i thought I would like you know look at the website and uh, see a bunch of uh, positions calling for theater historians, theater theorists, mm-hmm. theater critics, uh, but you know the number of jobs calling for uh, designers uh, as well as directors. I thought that was important uh, to note. Yeah. and also I noticed that uh, we're having a search at Northwestern for two positions um, you know we're hiring a director and also a person to teach musical theater, and neither appeared on the wiki list uh, yeah, which I... which which I, which I I'm not sure if I should put it there, by I assume people just kind of people who were searching for jobs generously in the spirit of community just posted their descriptions you know, That's uh, really from interesting. other job search lists like the Chronicle and stuff like that
1: We've been searching for a dance performance studies person at Bowdoin and it, it is also not on the list, which perhaps begs the question of who does who is expected to post to the wikis yeah. um, and what are the You know, what are the game theory incentives for posting or not posting uh, a position to which you are (laughs) applying? Right, because
0: it's job hunters who are creating the wiki. Did the Northwestern or the Bowden jobs, were they posted late or.
1: No, ours was posted quite early.
0: And is it on Art Search? Yes. Yeah. So that's what. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think, Harvey, the fact that there are... I I noticed that as well. uh, Design jobs, scenic design, lighting design. The Stanford um, assistant professorship tenure track in next-generation design is an interesting Mm. position. Sounds Um, a
1: little like, you know, like the Starship. but (laughs) (laughs) Like like the Enterprise. (laughs) You know, like it's next generation.
0: It's not original series. Um, uh, And, yeah, you, you know, sorry, you mentioned the call, which is open rank and open specialty. I don't know that the way, well, no, I think you're right, that when you read that Brown announcement, what they want is someone who will diversify the methodological, geographic, theoretical strengths of the department. In other words, it's convince us that you have something we don't have and go ahead and send an application and we want to be strong in an area that we uh, aren't as strong in now.
1: I'm just I agree with you I just think it's really interesting yeah. to to not give any priority or sense of what those areas might be it's yes. it really I think communicates to job searchers figure out who we are and what each of us does and then right. get in touch if you're not like any of us <laughs> but but again it's like this but then they kind of open ranks right so I mean I think you know, why would you do this? One is that you just cast the the widest possible net to try and figure out, you know, who the best people in the field are by whatever criteria you've established within within that, which seems to me to be the privilege of certain schools. But I just don't think something like this would fly at a lot of other schools. Mm-hmm. And, and I do wonder, you know, I guess, I mean, I'm not in a department like this. I haven't ever been in a department like this. But I'm sort of curious, like, what what is the range that you must get? And how do you begin to filter that in ways, unless you already know what you're going for, in which case, why are you not putting that in the app? Right.
2: I mean, I, I wonder in some ways if this is more of a, you know, a tactic for a department to communicate with the upper administration, right? Hmm. So, so, so essentially a way to inflate the number of applications. Hmm. Right, so you can say we had five hundred people apply for this job, mm-hmm. you know. So therefore, we really need to have not only this position but two positions or something like that, right? Absolutely. Uh, but when it's open rank, uh, when it was an open rank call, I always feel as though it disadvantages graduate students. Hmm.
0: Yeah. There were in that call two sets of instructions for junior and senior scholars. So the, and, and so in a way, it also disadvantages or um, puts a further hurdle in front of the younger scholars because they need to actually have letters completed instead of just um, recommenders identified. I wondered if it wasn't a way of postponing the difficult negotiations that happen before the job ad is constituted, where people on a search committee and at, in upper administration may say, we think you need this, we think we need this, actually we also need this. And so if you open it up and you say we need, we need Many different things possibly, and we want good people, then you can have perhaps those tough conversations later. In a way, what that type of ad does, and the as you mentioned, the Harvard uh, job from last year is like that, the brown job ad is like that, is sort of saying, you know, we don't have everything. Uh, here's what we, you know, instead of saying, here's what we really need, it's just we want things we don't have. In a way, some of these other job ads are doing the same thing. So the Amherst job ad, um, which is a professor of acting, but then the bulk of the text is about the need that they see for people who will address um, students and issues of socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity, underrepresentation, expertise in global uh, theater and performance and dramatic literature performance theory. And in a way, that's another list of the things where they feel like they want something. And are they gonna get one person who does all of those things? Maybe not, but those are the sort of categories that they're targeting.
1: See, and I I interpret those two Pieces of text in these ad- in these ads somewhat differently, which is to say that I think in the Brown ad, as I interpret it, and I, I certainly don't mean to malign or misrepresent the intentions of our very fine colleagues in that department, right? So of course, of course, uh, you know I don't I don't mean, and nor is it I think entirely uh, appropriate to presume I understand what they're going for, what they're trying to articulate. It seems to me that in the Brown ad, they're try- they're really looking for again the things they don't have and trying to figure out. Who who's out there, right? It's a really, and I felt this was with the Harvard ad also, right? It was like a kind yeah. of a attempt to bring everybody in and figure out, you know, what's what's available. the The Amherst job and their kind of, you know, we're looking for someone in acting, and then this long list is really more about, I think, communicating what the department wants, but can't say that it wants, yes. which is to say, you can't say. You know, we're a mostly all-white department. We'd like someone who is not white. Right, right. Right? Uh, So you talk about we'd like someone who can work with diverse populations. Right? You know, we want someone who's attentive to certain issues, but we can't, you know, we can't say that. And so I think, you know, which brings up the the whole question of, you know, the the close reading of a very particular genre of literature, (laughs) which is the academic job ad, and how do you parse... Information and and a very sometimes very subtle f- modes of communication and messages that are encoded within these within these texts.
0: This is a good opportunity to segue into the other part of the topic that we uh, planned to address, which is um, advice, uh, uh, memorable experiences uh, for being on the job market. One of them, I think, one big category of that is how do you try to read the tea leaves of a job ad written invariably by a committee that may, you know, misrepresent who they're willing to hire and who they're not. Um, uh, And then once you're, you know, moving through the different steps, the, you know, hallway chat at the conference, the long list Skype interview, the short list campus visit, the sit down with the deans, teach the sample class, maybe not uh, the the job talk. Um, This could fill an hour of podcasting, but we did want to think about some of the stories of, of our own experiences on the job market. Um, uh, does anyone have a, 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 something they want to offer? When, when do you lead off? I thought about this you know, a lot and I you, <laughs> um, it, This is one of these great moments where you try to think as you're speaking about what you want to say and what you don't want to say. Um, I've had a, <laughs> a number of job interviews and I have had a number of job offers and the first number is larger than the second. so. I've been on a few interviews, but I don't know that I have cracked the code about how to, you know, win people over (laughs) to extend me an offer. Um, So I think, you know, rather than sort of give my sense of, you know, my my sterling advice, my tested advice about how to do it, um, I think I'll just tell a story about my successful job interview um, at Wash U which you know it's such a nerve-wracking experience what everyone always says and it's true is that it's a you are so burned out you're I mean you're not burned out but you're going on adrenaline and carb calories as long as you can for an extremely long day or maybe multiple days Um, in addition to that just keeping your nerves under control can be a tough thing on the day that I was interviewing I had you know an hour in my hotel room to sort of relax before and then I crossed campus I walked across this muddy field, this quad that I now know no one walks across because it's muddy. I got, <laughs> I got mud all over my shoes. Um, I I started to get stressed out about that I was like I can't walk in with muddy shoes so I went to the library into the restroom to sort of clean off my shoes and of course I have like 15 10 minutes before my job talk starts Um, uh, I go to the restroom I'm cleaning my shoes off and I get a nosebleed and it's you know 10 minutes before I'm gonna give my job talk and I think the nosebleed was just like stress induced but didn't do anything to calm my nerves (laughs) at the moment I guess what I would transmute this horror story uh, into uh, the advice that I would transmute this into is if you can think about ways to decomplicate your task, your um, uh, your interview, that's a good idea. One thing that I did was I didn't have a PowerPoint for that presentation. I read my talk, and that I think was a great reducer of stress. I think most job talks, most academic talks, have a tech element; they have a visual aid, but. You know, if you have slides, bring twenty printouts of those images in case the tech collapses, so that you're not going to end up standing there, unable to show the key image that brings your whole talk together. You know, find ways to simplify what you're going to do on that day if you can. What about
2: you guys? Well, well, for me, uh, uh-huh. I'll go less sort of successful strategy and more. Uh, job search challenge. Uh, I applied for a lot of jobs when I applied uh, initially, and they were all quite similar, right? You know, some were vague in description. You know, um, the ones that were more specific were the ones were looking for someone who could teach, you know, African American theater or American theater or contemporary American theater or American theater post 1900, post 1850, post 1814, whatever. And I applied for a lot of jobs, and you know, the schools were sort of geographically sort of spread across the US. And um, most said, most didn't even respond, right? Like, so it's the vast majority of them. And and it was amazing that like some jobs have the same description, you know, like most of those jobs I didn't advance at all. Uh, And then occasionally I would advance. I went to the MLA uh, to interview, I had five MLA interviews at the MLA. And I was like, five MLA interviews, like this is gonna translate to campus visits. Not a one did, like Mm -hmm. not a single one. Uh, I had four campus visits and actually all four of them didn't turn into a job offer either. Um, and it's like I was hired actually at Northwestern uh, like sort of after their search closed as like you know a visiting lecturer initially mm-hmm. uh, and then my job converted later on. Uh, but it was just one of those things where it's like it made me realize how random the process is. Yes. Uh, and I will say the one, like, but the one thing I hold on to uh, was that you know so my, my, my one sort of negative, really negative experience I think I had. Uh, my very first campus visit, I sat across uh, the chair, um, you know, of of a department, um, and it wasn't a theater department, it was cross-appointment jobs, and so the chair of the other department that was the cross-appointment sort of, like, sort of said at the very beginning, he's like, Harvey, uh, we have a a tendency to hire our PhDs from Stanford, and and I said, I went to Cornell, And, and he said, I know. (laughs) <laughs> right now, you know and then it just went downhill from there like it was just awful oh, no. you know so I think it's just all a way of saying that like more doors will close than will open uh, people will be uh inappropriate and and not nice uh, but that's their issue right and the key thing to do is just keep your head up
1: you know I I think we're we kind of came on the market at about the same time Harvey and I and it occurs to me you know as anxiety, and high stakes as it felt then, I think the market is very different now. So, uh, so I really feel for people who are, you know, encountering this. I, I, I think I don't even think people pretend the phrase that I heard often, which is, everybody could get something, right? You know, which I don't even think people are really. Circul- I hope they're not actually circulating that that uh, that phrase anymore. Um, I think what you realize once you're on your first search committee after having been hired is just how whimsical and capricious the process is. And that there are all kinds of factors that cannot and will not be articulated and shared as part of the process that nevertheless will be a major determining factor in whether or not you are hired. And in fact, even just in how you are received and understood. Um, And so I I think it's as much as you cannot take it personally, and not over overread or over-interpret any, any one moment in that process. Um, you know, I certainly have had interviews that went really, really poorly. I've had other ones that went a little bit better. Um, you know, one of my kind of favorite early moments, uh, I was on an interview where, and again, this is in the days before social media, Uh, where someone came to you know pick me up and uh, they were clearly kind of looking around and I'm I'm trying to make eye contact because I can see that they're kind of for me and I I walk up and I shake hands and I say hi I'm Sarah Beijing and they're like oh oh uh, oh oh yes of course okay yeah welcome (laughs) and 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 I kind of gradually figured out that they thought I was Chinese um, and that they thought I was maybe a bit more feminine than what they were prepared for. Uh. And and so like I had sort of I like I totally missed both both the racial category of expectation and the gender category of Good. expectation. Uh, and uh, it it has meant that from that moment, I then began to self-disclose hmm. keys about who I actually was because if you are looking for someone who does, who, you know, if you really want to diversify, Right, I'm not that I, you know racially. I'm not that candidate, uh, and and so it. And now, of course, I think it's a lot less of an issue in the age of Google. But it's just it's such a strange process that's both exhilarating and debilitating yes, at moments. That's true. These
0: stories are making me feel better about the interviews I had that didn't go my way. And you're so right. And I have been on a search committee since, and there are factors that are not disclosed that are. Uh, sometimes capricious or strange and have nothing to do with the candidates interview. Um,
2: so.
1: <laughs> this, this strikes me as not a very uplifting. <laughs> no, no. So good luck everybody. <laughs> and, uh...
2: no, but it's difficult. It's, it, it's, it's, it's stressful applying for jobs. It, um, can really test friendship sometimes, you know, within the Academy. Yeah. Uh, and the key thing to do is to just remember you're going to get through it. Uh, just be patient. Um, you know, and um, really reach out to your mentors and your advisors for assistance we needed. It's a good word.
0: Why don't we leave that topic and move on to our second of the podcast. Emma Rice's departure from Shakespeare's Globe Theater in London uh, was a big story in the world of theater. And on the podcast, we, we talk about the world of academic theater and performance studies. And this was, I, I think, it, a story that belongs to the world of theater, but it definitely caught our eye because there are several different um, tensions that are woven into it that I think intersect with academia. Um, so the story, in a nutshell, is that in the middle uh, and guys correct me if I get any of these details wrong but I, what I believe is in the middle of the first season that she was hired to uh, uh, serve as artistic director for the Globe um, the the board decided that um, she would only be artistic director for two seasons, so this season and then 2017 will be Emma Rice's last. Um, uh, Emma Rice came from Knee High Theater, which is a theater with a reputation for um, uh, a kind of rock and roll, kind of punk aesthetic, Um, definitely non-traditional design and casting choices, Um, very exciting uh, work. And the you know the statements that were released announcing this change of leadership um, pointed to the issue of lighting.
2: Um, yes.
0: And specifically, the the fact that the the mission of Shakespeare's Globe is to experiment with um, performance conditions that are true to the 17th century, uh, 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 you know, original circumstances of Elizabethan um, uh, and Jacobean theater, um, shared light in particular, meaning that even though. Shakespeare productions at the Globe happen in the evening. Um, the light that they use replicates daylight; it, 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 it illuminates floodlight. the audience and the and the performers at the same time. This decision has been condemned from numerous quarters. People suggest that. There was sexism at play, that Emma Rice didn't get the same consideration that um, male um, artistic directors of prestigious theaters got, that the idea that the uh, original performance conditions um, should be maintained and that that was the uh, reason for her uh, departure. um, People argue that this is, you know, uh, a sort of silly argument given in in how many ways Performance conditions have to be different from the original, um, and in certain commentary, there there was invocation of academics who want the globe to be their plaything, and this caught my attention uh, very well because I the academics that I know, which are you know admittedly uh, weighted towards Americans, um, uh, none of the academics I know thought that this was a good decision for the globe, um, but uh, it brings up a lot of Wait, issues. A, a, not a good decision to. That it was a that it was a bad decision to let Emma Rice go. Okay. So in other words, the academic the reactions from academics that I've seen on social media have not uh, lined up with the criticism that I've seen, which says that um, essentially, uh, you know, academics who favor this sort of experiment in historical um, uh, authenticity um, were the, were part of the contingent that wanted Rice out. Um, so there's all sorts of issues baked into this. Uh, uh, what do you guys think?
2: It's, it's difficult to know what the truth is here uh, because it has to be more than uh, putting in a sort of conventional uh, theatrical lighting setup uh, in the, the globe. It has to be more than that, right? Uh, my sense of it is that, sure, there is some concern about you know what is the ongoing aesthetic going to be for the for Globe Productions? You know, so I suspect that might be part of the longer conversation because a lot of the articles that we've looked at right certainly indicate that. You know, there's been many exceptions, right? You know, sort of contemporary dress, gest- contemporary dress Shakespeare, um, uh, you know, other uh, directorial visions attached to you know how to stage specific works, uh, and this would seem to fall into that category to me. Uh, and my suspicion is there must be this sort of like longer, deeper. Um, uh, sort of a controversy related to what type of stagings and staging practices will be embraced you know, you know for the long term. So that's my suspicion.
1: So I, I would like to engage in a theatrical exercise in which I, not I, engage the defense of the globes decision mm-hmm. yes, yep. right because I so in in preparation for this, I've been reading, the, the Globe's announcement on its Tumblr page, and then extensively through the through the the, the credits, and so the question I'll raise, for, from 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 that that perspective, is um, is one that's been raised by a number of people who did not like Emma Rice's staging of various shows and did not appreciate the installation of lighting rigging and amplified sound in yes. particular ways in the in the space, which is to say. Um, so is it possible for the globe to maintain a certain kind of vision, aesthetic, and mission, uh, that is by, you know, an admittedly conservative small C, right, a a conservation cultural heritage project, um, and to have that be the whole of the reason without layering sexism and other things on top of this, right, because, and the, the, the defense of this is not only the choices that she made, but also statements that Emma Rice had about understanding and, and, and liking Shakespeare, her, mm-hmm. you know, level of engagement with these texts and their history and their staging practices. And, and you know, as more than one commentators uh, on, the, on the Globe Tumblr uh, put forward, was like look there are lots of opportunities to do lots of things with Shakespeare it's not like the globe artistic director or you know the the globe board and and producing producers have like are running around the planet you know condemning all strange and producers of Shakespeare. they are simply saying again taking the position that you know this is the theater this is its mission what Emma Rice has done falls far outside that mission, and so we've decided that in weighing the balance of innovation within the space and the value of maintaining right a kind of cultural heritage project, that right. we would prefer to do the latter. So that's why we're making this decision. Yeah,
0: yeah I think it's a reasonable argument to have. You're you are uh, 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 forcing me to think on my feet because I was going to play devil's advocate and say why couldn't the globe. Be why couldn't the globe dedicate itself to being a kind of uh, museum theater in, in the way that yeah. in Japan, no is still performed in its classical form, that kabuki is performed in those ways that there are institutions that are dedicated to making a kind of, you know, theater as a memory machine where you can go and imagine the original conditions and you know, it's not as though this is exclusive, and Shakespeare can only be performed this way. But if there is an institution that wants to do it, that's fine. I, you know, I can't imagine that people would say the Globe cannot, the Globe's board cannot pick its own artistic director on the basis of aesthetics. No, I,
2: I agree with you. I mean, I think there's, there's a the the the, the Globe currently sells out what 85 percent of its seats. Uh, you know, and I'm assuming it's to tourists and student groups and you know people generally interested in. you know, seeing this sort of approximate, um, uh, you know, sort of quasi-authentic staging of Shakespeare, right? So you figure if that's the bread and butter for for the globe itself, then you can understand why the people who are entrusted to sort of preserve the enterprise, you know, might be worried about anyone who wants to uh, sort of change that approach and
1: aesthetic. So if I can then flip back the other direction, <laughs> and now I will speak on be not again not as myself, but uh, on for, behalf of the critics for the
0: benefit of listeners who can't see. Sarah has just pulled a mask. Off <laughs> and it's Sarah Beijing Jung under the mask. It, it, it's
1: it's a it's a shocking revelation, really. Um, I think my hair is parted on the other side, Um, which if you had looked carefully, you would have noticed, (laughs) which is to say, okay, so um, to the to the first point or one of the points that that Harvey made and that was raised is that, in fact, under Emma Rice's leadership, uh, financially, the Globe had been doing quite well. And in fact, there was evidence that they were diversifying audiences, that they were increasing ticket sales, that there was actually an expansion of the number of people who were being engaged. So while there were probably, and I would expect some very vocal opposition and perhaps longstanding members who had a big problem with this. And, and I think there are a fair number of uh, critics and theater scholars in London who had serious objections to what was happening at the globe. So I, I don't wanna, you know, I think there's diversity in both camps there. Um, there's evidence that in that level it was successful. The other is to go to, um, you know, Gideon Lester's argument that he makes on how round, yes. um, which I feel like is like now becoming a, a constant on tap right interlocutor, um, where he so. he makes the argument, uh, and I, which I find quite convincing, uh, that okay, so what is preservation? What is conservation? What is promotion? Yes. And is conservation of an of an artistic and aesthetic ideal uh, about maintaining? continuity and consistency, or is it about recognizing what what made Shakespeare so compelling in his own time and what has made the work so compelling over time, and therefore the essence of Shakespeare is in fact innovation and change within these kinds of boundaries, in which case the argument could be made if you really want to preserve the cultural heritage, not just these specific practices then the globe ought to, in the preservation of Shakespeare, be invested in a way of, of, of updating and maintaining and energizing the work for people going forward, not just people who are looking back.
0: Yeah, and I I will say that I endorse that personally. I endorse that point of view. If I were a uh, resident of London, if I were on the board of the Globe, I would I would imagine arguing, look, this this director is bringing in younger audiences. There are people who would not want to sit through a you know pr- a, a production of Midsummer Night's Dream in shared light without this kind of uh, you know. Adventurous and challenging aesthetic choice, and you know, an artistic director does not have to permanently change the mission of the theater. And there could, there could be shared light productions, you know, uh, after her tenure is over. But what's the what's the advantage of having, you know, that level of conservatism in in the mission? So in a way, both things are true. And I think you know, I, I wouldn't want to discount the. Um, the the criticism that this might be a there might be sexism involved I think it, you know it is hard to know what people's thoughts are I don't mean to say that it couldn't have been the decision couldn't have been on the basis of aesthetics and mission but Emma Rice did feel as though she was treated in ways that other high profile male artistic directors just wouldn't have been that they wouldn't have been ousted after half a season or you know essentially been you know had that in, that departure forced on them and that small period of time. To me, it brings up a whole different set of issues, specifically having to do with Shakespeare and what we value about it. It makes me think in a contrasting way about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's project, the Play On project, where they're translating all of Shakespeare's plays into uh, contemporary speech. And this, you know, I'm comfortable at this point coming out as a a bit of a Shakespeare hater, partly because i think that the play, that shakespeare is so overperformed overproduced compared to other playwrights that it actually goes beyond the what is special about shakespeare um, and for my to my mind perhaps the only thing that is special about shakespeare is the language and so if you're going to translate all of these plays you'll end up with plays that strip away the only thing about shakespeare that is actually truly Exceptional compared to other playwrights in the English language and you'll end up with a bunch of you know poorly plotted uh, Plays that end on unsatisfying notes um, And that now are in contemporary language, so we can actually see what's wrong with them um, you, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, but you don't think that like okay, so so I think there's like layers of Shakespeare here, right? So obviously there's Shakespeare yes. like playwright in his own time and author of these texts yes. and 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 there you could say like what's Shakespeare other than the language, but what's other than Shakespeare the language is like Shakespeare the the cult object Shakespeare the kitsch you know (laughs) object and so investigate like using that name right and his sort of celebrity status as a mode of investigating and questioning what are the what are the assumed or received ideas that we think of as Shakespearean. That seems to me to be totally, uh, you know, uh, in bounds and potentially quite valuable in the OSF project.
0: Wait, are you saying that what's valuable about it is that we will further dive into the the cult of Shakespeare for its own sake? Or... No, I
1: mean that you you the cult of Shakespeare is what it is, and and you're unlikely to to change that significantly. But particularly if you take the position that you just articulated, which is that is he is overproduced relative to other playwrights, then, like, then using the name and the identity again of Shakespeare as a kind of cult object, independent of the actual language in the plays, and using that as a kind of wedge to open up this question of what is the what is the effect of English language drama that is always and forever in the wake of Shakespeare, yes. you know, something that Tennessee Williams points to in The Glass Menagerie by giving, Tom, you know, by giving Tom the nickname Shakespeare, and we see this in many other places, right? Shakespeare isn't just a guy who wrote plays, and they aren't just a collection of texts. It's a cultural identity that becomes a signifier of all kinds of other things. For me, it seems like OSF has actually used that cultural signifier as an insertion into cultural conversation and, and used that as a wedge to open up a space for all these other playwrights who are not... Okay. Produced on par or in in equitable compensation with the bard.
2: Yes, no one would ever will be produced the same level as as the bard. For sure not. you know I, I was reminded of a trip I took to the art the art institute in uh, Chicago the art museum, and there was a Vincent Van Gogh exhibit, and the line was it was obscenely long. It was like a two hour wait. Uh, I mean, I went there just when it opened, so I I didn't wait that long but when I left it was a two hour wait and there were these markers that would say like from here the wait's an hour right and the amazing thing is people were waiting for this Vincent Van Gogh exhibit and they were not even paying attention to um, you know all the other amazing works that were like right around them on the walls and and what it made me realize was that it it wasn't that people are interested in in the individual art itself it's that they're it's like they have this connection or maybe a memory of this sort of received sense of what is culturally important, right? Perhaps something that was kind of instilled in them in like high school or whatever else. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that might be kind of part of what motivates this controversy related to um, the globe, right, you know, where it's the sense that, you know, like here is this gift. This is uh, Sam Wanamaker's dream, right, realized yeah. Uh, of yeah. this authentic Shakespeare that everyone has studied and everyone knows and everyone loves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then here's a person who wants to ruin that but, but <laughs> thing, but, well,
0: But this, I think this exposes, I think this actually allows us to land further on Emma Rice's side or myself to land further on her side, which is to say that if what explains the Shakespeare phenomena and the fact that Shakespeare is, and this is a fact, the most produced playwright in English in the United States in 2015, 2016. Every season. If what explains it is partly that it symbolically stands for culture and appreciation of history and, you know, a sort of uh, a, a, a um, encapsulation of a kind of you know, culture as, I don't want to say commodity because it's uh, not, I don't, I don't believe that Shakespeare is um, sold for profit in a way that's terribly crass, but that it's something that people in the English-speaking world recognize as being a very important thing that one needs to engage with to be a, a, a cultured person, if that's what it is, apart from... Uh, the actual quality of the plays the actual uh, uniqueness of the language, which again I think is the only thing that really makes Shakespeare fully remarkable, or um, uh, you know if if it's not the the dramaturgy, if it's not the language certainly it's not shared light (laughs) which is you know, of the many different ways that plays were performed historically, just one, right? You, You don't need to have, I don't think there's anything about you know shakespeare's text uh needing uniquely to have a uh, reciprocal dynamic sensory dynamic between performer and spectator in a way these are all just different um uh, qualities and categories of experiences that are adjoined to the shakespeare name and 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 cult and so why why shared light should be the thing that's you know, really makes Shakespeare Shakespeare. Uh, to me, that seems all the more arbitrary. Although it works,
2: though. I mean, it, it, I mean, in the, like, whenever you go to the theater in general, and you know, there is that trick of turn the house lights mm-hmm. up, right, and then you watch the audience members squirm, right, because it's so atypical. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is you know part of what becomes sort of standard. It's that sort of that sense of strangeness, that uniqueness of being seen by the performer and often being called out by them as well.
0: So it works, but then Emma Rice comes in, puts up a directional lighting rig and likes some actors and changes the genders of some roles. And then people are flocking to see productions that they, more so than they were, when there was shared light. So if you care about Shakespeare and you care about the, um, the 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 meanings and the experience and the legacy, et cetera, et cetera, then you should want a director that's going to bring people
2: right. in to see things that they wouldn't otherwise. Although the weird thing about it is that, I mean, and this this is why I, I maintain there's more like, you know, under the surface, right? Because... Any sort of board of directors would give an artistic director more time to actually develop audiences, right? Because because like you're not going to develop a whole new like you know group of audience a, a, a new group of subscribers uh, and attendees uh, in the course of one year, right? Because you don't know if if the foot traffic is uh, because this is just something different for this one production, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or mm-hmm. this is like a, a sea change in terms of the culture for the globe. But like, we just don't know those things. Uh, yeah, so there's something, there's some, there's something like Donald Trump. There's something going on there. <laughs> it's, yeah. Oh, oh, I knew Donald
0: Trump would be mentioned. I, 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 I am doing my best to distract myself with Aster from the election coming up. But um, certainly, absolutely, there's something uh, uh, special going on with those with those productions. Um, anything else we want to talk about on this topic, or should we move on to Aster Twenty Sixteen? I think we max up our non knowledge of this. i certainly know a lot about reading articles on the guardian
1: you know at some point the 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 podcast will publish a book of you know behind the podcast talking about things we haven't seen haven't read and don't know very much about (laughs) oh
2: we've read we've but we have opinions that is important yes we have strong opinions exactly Um, and we have our drinks in front of us too do we have our drinks
1: we could make the little drink to prove. Indeed. Uh, We
0: wanted to, in our final segment, talk about Aster 2016. Um, There's any number of things that We could remark on about this uh, this conference. Um, The you know uh, Jennifer Parker Starbuck and Joshua Abrams have planned uh, what it you know my sense from reading social media and talking to people is just a very successful ester that has a lot of exciting scholarship and um, that people are really enjoying. Um, It's on the theme of of trans trans hyphen. Um, All of the plenaries and the working sessions in some way integrate that prefix. Um, There's the, the, the conference is uh, sort of social media forward. Twitter is deliberately integrated as a part of the experience and participants are encouraged to hop on Twitter and, uh, and tweet the conference. Um, the state of the Pro- state of the profession uh, panel was uh, was, uh, held on the first day, or I guess the um, second day of the conference, Thursday, right? Which was the first day. It, it was yes. held at yeah. the beginning instead of at the end. Um, uh, I've seen a couple of plenaries. Um, we had the award ceremony. What do you guys? Uh, what do? You, what have you seen? What are you thinking about in relation to Aster sixteen?
2: Overall, I think that uh, Josh and Jed have done a tremendous job. I mean, I, I would say that. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a, a sort of role model, a role models on how to organize an effective conference that, you know, is truly interdisciplinary, that sort of privileges the spotlight performance, uh, that uh, is is fair and democratic in uh, opening up spots on plenary sessions for graduate students, emerging scholars, as well as senior scholars. They've done a spectacular job.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. One of the other things is I think this is one of the the first conferences to make. Uh, tweeting and to foreground that in terms of as a kind of mode of engagement and I have I have somewhat mixed feelings about this in, in this iteration um, I am uh, loving the tweets of, of, of my colleagues and I, uh, and I you know following um, Kali Westerling right there's a kind of wonderful ongoing uh, Twitter network cloud um, that you can kind of follow along with which is really great um, that sort of shows you the, all of the networked connections of, of the, the, the tweeters um, at the same time I found that when I'm really trying to concentrate on on tweeting and that uh, my mode of engagement for really listening and thinking through some of the ideas right I find that I become a kind of superficial echo yes. for certain moments and I'm, I'm concentrating a lot on what's the, what's the sound bite that I can yeah. take and pull and you know, so much so that I think I'm identified in the program as like a key tweeter for theater and transmedia, which was my working group. And I got really into the ideas and was thinking about the, the papers such that I wrote not a single tweet during the entire session. Right. So the uh, and so it, it does, you know, as a as a dedicated uh I feel at the same moment compelled to say that that the I, you know, I think we're still working out what is the role of social media and um, on-site reportage during during live events. Yes. Yeah,
0: I agree. I think the one of the one of the more memorable moments for me was the um, State of the Profession panel, partly because um, the you know tweets were being um, projected onto the screens on either side of the participants throughout the session, um, and it was you know i enjoy tweeting conferences as well i very much enjoy uh being able to see what's going on in sessions where i'm not present thanks to thanks to twitter um and i think it's a good sort of uh way to add a layer of communication and thought and reaction um around academic conferences having the tweets uh projected and then transitioning with this, you know, admittedly cool and aesthetically um, grabby uh, graphic where, you know, a tweet would be projected and then all the letters that were not in the next tweet uh, would disappear and then be filled in with all the the subsequent letters was mesmerizing. But watching it while you're listening to the um, presenters speak was uh a bit overwhelming and maybe i'm just you know approaching middle age and can't uh focus on too many things as much as i could and perhaps that that experience was is there too much percent. of a lighting
1: rig for you there <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: no i wanted shared i wanted shared <laughs> light, and i won't
2: Detracting
0: from the original performance i won't tolerate my my uh state of the profession with uh with anything other than shared light um mm. but it was also i think in that moment it was partly that panel the way it was constructed. Um, you know, and I and I want to say it's very easy to it's it's hard to plan a conference, and it's very easy to sort of armchair quarterback it. And having uh, convened working sessions before and planned events before, like there's just you don't have complete control over um, the way things end up, and uh, nor should you. And so I don't mean for this to be you know a criticism um, of of how the the conference was planned, but in that session, it was a unique format. Um, uh, Participants were paired up in sort of pre-session interviews where they asked questions of each other and they introduced each other. There were a lot of uh, graduate students and early career um, people on that panel. Um, And then for a part of that session, they went up and down the line and people just uh, uh, articulated questions, questions about the state of the profession. And we were encouraged to tweet them but if you stopped to tweet one you would miss you know the next two or three questions um the questions were complicated and generative but also didn't necessarily translate well into 140 characters and by the end i also felt like the questions were directed at an amalgam of different things some of which had to do with challenges in the profession some of which had to do with um, the challenges that transgender uh, persons face, some of which had to do with um, you know suffixes that uh, we use at the end of uh, Latin to uh, denote that you know part of the field. I, I became kind of overwhelmed by, how many different things were being uh, questioned or brought up in the same session. Um, so I think it was a, a, a you know, an interesting experiment. It was certainly, I think, like I said, one of the more memorable, um, uh, certainly one of the more memorable state of the profession um, panels that I've seen. Um, what else, I don't know, other moments from the conference you guys remember? Good plenaries, interesting plenaries?
1: Uh, I thought the first plenary yesterday uh. morning uh, was was really quite good. So this is the one with um, Michelle Carragher and Robin Bernstein and um, Kellen Hawksworth Yeah, I, I, I thought, that was, uh, I thought that was just an amazing, uh, amazing panel. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm right there with Charlotte Canning, who said, "I you know this was a reason to get up early." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, And I, I also really enjoyed the 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 two papers of the TLA uh, plenary this morning. Uh, You know, also uh, kind of cruelly at at 8.30 in the morning um, Though to be fair, I was already up for my 7.30 a.m. meeting So, (laughs) um, but you know, it's, I, I, those were, but I I mean But the one yesterday um, was was, was really an extraordinary display by all three scholars Of this kind of amazing intersection of really rigorous archival work uh, finding the things that are not readily apparent on the surface and, and, and communicated with a, with a pleasure and engagement that you know uh, I think as somebody said you know that Robin had basically convinced them that the coolest thing in the world would have been to be in upstate New York in 1840s, you know, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, which I think really is strong, really a
0: statement. Really strong 19th century historical work from uh, uh, from Robin Bernstein and Kellen Hawksworth, and I thought Michelle Carragher's paper was great in diving into a question re- regarding um, cultural appropriation and protest and the the you know in, in a way that was really I thought on her part you know, fearless and self reflexive and um, challenging to the question of what's at stake when um, one protests the, you know, uh, ostensible appropriation of dress or costume or other um, cultural a- artifacts that, that may or may not belong in a proprietary way to a group. I thought it was terrific.
1: I thought it was also super helpful uh, in terms of I don't know what kinds of things have been going on in your campuses, but you know Bowdoin College actually has has had some questions about this in the last year or so, um, some of which have made the national media. And I think that, you know, as I encouraged, was sort of talking through it with my students, I said, you know, to what degree is theater a relevant framework in which to ask some of these questions? And, and what I found Michelle's, you know, paper did so beautifully was to illustrate exactly where we might use notions of costume and performance and yeah. history uh, to, to open up these questions beyond the immediate and, uh, and most self-evident uh, Problems or concerns that have with that, and, and, and I guess I'll just add a
2: couple sort of, I guess maybe behind the scenes things, uh, since I spent a lot of time in meetings uh, during the, during this conference, and uh, so the 2017 conference uh, I'm on that program committee, and there's a sincere commitment to sort of diversity and inclusion uh, with that conference, uh, and. In, in fact, the call is to consider extraordinary bodies or extraordinary bodies as a way of inviting all members and prospective attendees, right? To consider uh, those bodies that are often overlooked, uh, under theorized, um, not written about all that much. You know, so you know, th- we, we had a great conversation about that as well as you know, what does the state of the pr- profession panel do you know, in one of these conferences, right? So we did that. And then also for Theatre Survey, I I attended a few meetings related to that, and Nick Reinout is doing a fantastic job editing that journal, and his first issue on Theatre and Marxism will be out in January.
0: Why don't we move on to our drafts? Drafts, uh, of course, are our thoughts <clears throat> in process, the things we might be working on, the things we've read, the things that are on our minds in relation to the field. Um, I'll just go ahead and go first. Um, mine has to do with in a way, it has to do with uh, intellectual property and, and copyright, partly because I have been thinking about Anthea Kraut's book, Choreographing Copyright. Um, I was uh, looking at the Fiasco Theatre Company's um, uh, tour of their production of Into the Woods. Um, Fiasco Theatre is a theatre company based in New York that um, is run by a lot of uh, friends of mine from graduate school. And so I am always very excited when they have uh, great productions and their production of Into the the woods is now going to tour um uh north america um but the you know the, the play is a musical um, by sondheim and lapine the cast of the touring production is uh includes from what i can tell none of the usual members of the fiasco company um, and in their really successful productions of Cymbeline and, and Into the Woods, the directors and the actors are all the same. So it got me thinking, what is, you know, in what way is this touring show a fiasco show if the, you know, the, the company is not performing in a... The, Property of the musical, intellectual property of the musical is Sondheim. Um, uh, And so, what makes it theirs? And I asked Ben Steinfeld, who's one of the directors at Fiasco, like, you know, don't tell me the nitty gritty numbers, but, you know, in what way is this your show? And he said, it's, you know, the the concept, the design, and execution um, is what makes it a Fiasco show. But, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's a legal contract that explains their stake in it. Um, But I wondered if, you know, that meant that there were, you know, had they negotiated with Sondheim exclusive uh, production rights during that moment or for that tour? Um, And it, you know, just got got me thinking about the sort of intangibility of uh, theatrical creations where their show is going to be going around the country without their bodies attached to it. And it's not their... Play in a sense, but it is their production. Um, so, at any rate, another way to be thinking about um, performance and uh, uh, intangibility and intellectual
2: property. Harvey, what's your draft? Yeah, so, so I've been thinking a lot about uh, speech and performance, and how within performance studies, there's not not consistently uh, and not necessarily like widely, but there is a certain strain within the performance studies community. Uh, that has sort of backed away or stepped away from uh, thinking about speech and performance, you know. So, so not only performativity, but you know, you know, and its variants, you know. And I think that it's, it's all well-meaning, right? It's all well-meaning because of a concern about you know, institutional authority, you know, who has the power to, uh, like, you know, who is accorded the power and by whom, you know, to um, uh, control discourse, right? Uh, to write laws, whatever, and. in in response to that there's been great scholarship about right sort of uh sort of minoritized groups and 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 activism that's of body-based activism marches protests sort of like the body performing to express a politics um you know uh, separate from you know sort of accounts of sort of speech and discourse and you know i'm sort of worried a bit about that sort of backing away Mm -hmm. right I, i i feel that you know there's there's there is a way in which we sort of imagine that, you know, they're equatable, right? We, we we imagine that sort of embodied activism, um, you know, can radically change sort of political structures, you know, without actually sort of tackling sort of how speech works and how uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so just how, actually how, how speech works. You know, so that's what I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm trying to sort of square those two, trying to find a balance across the two.
0: It's a, It's a question that I, in a tangential way, I've been thinking about as well on a theoretical level, which is, can can ritual performance or can what we think of as performance in embodied contexts embody propositions? In other words, Hmm. a proposition is a discursive entity, right? You, you, you state that a thing is true or it's not true. And is performance apart from what we think of as the different species of performatives? um, Does it, can you ever translate a performed act apart from uh, that's that's non-discursive into a proposition or not. We'll talk later.
1: But really can you can you translate performance into a preposition? <laughs> yeah. like, we're getting into speech acts. I'd really like to see some yeah. some conjunction in prepositional <laughs> well, there's performativity, some, right? Like give me a, give me an of.
2: Performance on,
0: performance with.
1: Well isn't it like the, the the how they used to teach prepositions? Like what does the mouse do with the cheese? right yes on in at uh, around through oh, yes, right yes, as a yes, way like absolutely. anything so in in the sense like yes. prepositions are always inherently performative right you can't, you can't have a yeah. non performative yeah, yeah, preposition it's, it's,
2: it's always in relation to a body
0: there you go this right. is a major breakthrough that just emerged in drafts i'm so happy <clears
1: <performance>. <clears <throat> i have copyright on this by the way you may not <laughs> this may not be represented or re- replicated without my express <laughs> i may cut that for out. permission i may cut that out
0: the prepositional performance? <laughs> no, your 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 claim of intellectual.
1: Oh, property. fair enough. Okay, all right. Well, you know, uh, we, we've we've gone on a long time, and, and I, as usual, but uh, I'll simply say that what I'm thinking about right now is uh, the the theater, dance, and performance major. And so, with my colleagues at Bowdoin, uh, Bowdoin College, uh, does not has not had a theater major. We've had a theater minor and a dance minor, and we've had an interdisciplinary English and theater major, which is six classes in dramatic literature and six classes of an assortment of theatery things Mm -hmm. um, in various configurations. And so there's a kind of pleasure, I'll say, in thinking about, okay, so what does it mean to create a theater major today for the future as opposed to how do we rework something from 1950 or 1975 and bring it into today? It's like, how do we rethink this in this moment and project into 2050 and and beyond and so that was sort of as chair the you know charge that I sort of was given and presented to to my colleagues who have been unbelievably generous and enthusiastic about embracing change and new and, and the challenge of this. And so we've been thinking a lot about how do we create something that meets you know incoming undergraduates, high school students, many of whom have come here through many years of ballet training or jazz or tap or the high school musical, uh, or Shakespeare in the way that it was, it gets delivered in the, you know, high school curricula in various places. Um, and, and, and really infuse that with a thinking about, you know, performance across culture. Uh, so that's, that's what I've been really excited by.
0: It sounds good. And it's great that your colleagues are, are on board as well.
1: That really like from moment one. So, which allowed us to do a lot in a short period of time. That's great. <laughs> so, that's great. Yeah.
0: Um, guys thank you listeners thank you and um, stay tuned for the next edition On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies you can find us on the web at ONTAPpod.com email us at hosts at you can find us on Facebook search for ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAPpodcast